Hello, everybody. This is G, and you're listening to the SITREP Podcast, your home for everything modern military wargaming. And today at the command table, besides myself, there is Ralph from England. Hey, folks. And Jim from sunny Florida. Hello, everybody. Do you actually have sun? Because I haven't seen the sun in a week up here in uh, the Great North. It is absolutely gorgeous outside. I'm going outside as soon as we get done with this podcast. Ah, uh, sucks. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so we uh, appreciate you all joining us for this episode of the SITREP podcast. Uh, we're going to just talk about anything related to modern military wargaming. And with that, I uh, thought I'd start off with Jim. And Jim, do you have been doing any kind of hobbying or wargame-related activities? Um, yeah, a couple things. Uh, I've been still chipping away at my um, silly little uh, Halo guys. Uh, those are those Halo uh, Mega Blocks, whatever they are. They're basically like a Lego off-brand. Uh-huh. Um, they're actually pretty fun to paint. And because uh, they're so cheap and they're 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 big, they're probably like forty five mil if they were miniatures, which of course they really aren't. Um, so it's they're they're kind of fun to paint, and uh, you get like these weird goofy uh, colors and clear plastics and all this stuff, and it's fun to try and salvage them. Like, can I turn this into like an actual uh, you know thing? Get a bunch of wooden bases, uh, printed out a bunch of like sci-fi, like deck armor, like sci-fi uh, texture skins or whatever. Okay. Use that as like a rudimentary base or whatever, you know, paint the rim black. And um, I mean, for the amount of money that I'm putting into these, like $3 a figure, you know, $4 a figure, they're coming out pretty, uh, pretty good. I don't know what I'm going to do with them, but <laughs> they've been fun. They've been fun just to, just, just to, you know, keep my brushes wet, so to speak. There you go. Um... Which is really all I have time for. I haven't really gotten into too much more large projects. There's a few I want to get to, but um, yeah, it's just been a lot of online stuff. Um, pod, uh, the, uh, obviously, recording podcasts. On top of that, we have uh, Op Center episodes that have been going up recently, and uh, weekend wargaming. Um, well, we do every weekend with uh, people from the community. So we had two games this weekend. We had two games last, or no, the weekend before that, we had two games. And uh, it's been uh, it's been busy. It kind of eats up all your time, yeah. but it is still wargaming and chucking dice. So it's it's the reason you build miniatures is to play war games. So. And exactly, yeah. And uh, I I think your weekend wargaming, where you put all that work into doing it, so people can join you from anywhere in the world, is is truly amazing. So I I we all appreciate the hard work you do on that. So. It's uh, it's a lot of fun. I mean, like uh, it's not really modern wargaming, but Dark Star we've been playing. Uh, we've played Dark Star in, jeez, all literally all over the world. I mean, hello internet, uh, China, Australia, Canada, Puerto Rico, all across the U.S., Ireland, uh, Germany, the U.K. I mean, we've we've been everywhere. Um, it's just you know whether or not you can you know convert it somehow to where you can play digitally as opposed to you know actual pieces on a tabletop uh obviously we did air war c21 a couple weeks ago for the falklands mm -hmm. uh you and i uh today hopefully um of course this will have either happened or not happened by the time this podcast goes out but we're trying to do um naval command for the falklands uh with um dylan over in australia so we're gonna see if we can take another game system for the falklands and, and make that run at a slightly you know higher level uh of you know command level or whatever um, the map is an inch to a nautical mile, and it's a six by four table, so it's wow. seventy-two miles by forty-eight miles is you know your space. Uh huh. Um, yeah, and it's 
you know, these are the kind of games that you know you, you would never get to play, you know, like maybe once a year at, at a boot camp, you know, with people, you know, literally all over the world, and you know, with thousands of dollars in airfare and hotels and aggravation and everything else like that. So we're trying to get it to where you know people can. I mean, we, we're a wargaming community, and uh, you know, so why don't we you know get together once in a while and play war games? Exactly. Um, you know, the boot camps are amazing. I've been to three of them, um, but not everybody can always get to them. Not everybody wants to get to them. They're, you know, it's a great deal. The boot camp itself, but depending on where you live in the world, it can be very expensive just to get there. Um, so yeah, you know, we're trying to come up with some alternatives for that, and so far it's been working great. Yeah, it's almost like a virtual boot camp. So. Yeah, I was actually calling it that when I first rolled it out, and I didn't know if you know that was going to get under some people's skin or whatever. So I, I changed it over to like a Riskinese weekend war games or whatever. Yeah. But at first, I was calling it like like a Riskinese weekend boot camps, and I was like, ah, it's not really a new game, and you know I don't want to steal anything from uh, you know the boot camps that they run over there in Ireland. So I was like, yeah, I'll just leave it as like weekend war games or whatever. Awesome. Very cool. And then the last weekend, not really working related, but they had the Air and Sea show here in Fort Lauderdale. That's the reason I was off the grid last weekend. And um, that was a blast. They had um, an F-22 there uh, doing its demo. I've got some video of it. I'm going to try and you know splice it together and upload it to YouTube. Nice. F- F-22s, the Blue Angels were there. They had a C-17 um, Globemaster there. And uh, I was a little disappointed, but they did have a pair of A-10 Warthogs there or Thunderbolt 2s, um, actually. Um, they didn't really do a full demo. They just did, like, literally a flyby. Oh. And I was like, wow. <laughs> I missed it the first day. It's it's a two-day show. They basically repeat the show on Sunday. Because so I thought they were just – I had the camera ready, and then they zoomed by, and I was like, okay, they're getting set up. No, that was literally the whole show. Oh, really? I was all, uh, a little upset about that. But um, hopefully – I mean, thankfully, on Wednesday, on the next day, on the Sunday, I knew what was coming. And we had, you know, lookouts for it, and so we got some video of it the second time around. So, so no big uh, gun run, huh? Down the ocean? Or no, I, I was waiting for him to strafe that line of yachts and boats and, you know, $10 million pleasure craft out there. That would have been fun, you know, but <laughs> no, I'm disappointed again. Oh, well, what are you going to do? Yep. Awesome. Uh, Ralph, what about you? Um, I'm working through my Spectre Spetsnets at the moment, so getting those out the way. I've got five of them done, based and fully painted, ready to be basically varnished with a satin varnish and then a, a matte coat over the top just to double protect one. Um, and then I've got the other seven painted with um, primed black, painted the faces in, and I've just gone over the bodies with a I'm using Stevens of Spectre's um, multicam guide. Yeah. So I've got them all based, the prime black, and then I went over them all with some uh, gray green. Nice. Or green, green gray. Whichever one it is, which one of the two. Um, I think it's the green gray. I'm ready for the rest of it. So that's um, a 12 man Spetsnaz unit. I got two extras. Because um, I got my replacement, I had a problem with my Baba Yaga that I'd ordered. Oh, what they did. Um, the when it came out, the mold part of the gun was missing off oh. the pistol. Okay. So um, I contacted Jess and contacted Spectre and the sent us to another one, and I'd, of course, dropped one of my Spetsnats as well, the one with the backpack and the the MMG. Oh. 
and completely wrecked the gun, snapped it partially and all sorts. So I had to get a replacement one of them. So I decided to get a Spetsnaz with an AT, an anti-tank, big enough, the RPG that I have, uh-huh. and the one kneeling down with the grenade launcher as well. So I've got a 12-man Spetsnaz unit. I found as well, painting them, really nice to paint, but I found a much better way than using um, Vallejo gun, because i normally done the, the weapons and gun metal. Yeah. I've been using grey-black. Okay. And then going over with null oil. Okay. And it just dulls them down completely and it just makes them look a bit less shiny. Yeah. Because I think with the gun metal, the gun metal it's grey too- and stuff, it just, it's just way too shiny. Yeah, it's a little too much on the silver side, I think, personally. Yeah. Uh, what so- I've been do- doing is I will use the, like a gun metal and then mm-hmm. I will shave a pe- graphite pencil and then mm-hmm. I dust uh, the graphite over the metal parts of the weapon and it gives you that uh, worn metallic uh, yeah. you will see on like magazines and barrels and stuff from the bluing wearing off mm-hmm. so it's very subtle but it, it does do a nice effect so I've done, I found the, the gray black with the um, with the gun metal over the top with the, the no oil over the top just completely dulls it down okay and really does work and it also darkens it as well so you get the, the gray and black but then when you have the no oil it's darkening it and darkening it as well yeah um, um but I've, I've been doing the gloves as well with that as well. So oh, nice! They've got black gloves yeah. over the, uh, holding them, and the optic because I was these are the ones that I chopped a bunch of the emperor's heads uh-huh. to get the, the single optic. That was on a couple of the pictures I saw for the Spetsnaz. So all of the Spetsnaz have got the single uh, optic on their helmets as well. I see. Okay. Um, so. Another trick I do is I will mix a little bit of a dark wash like a nun oil with some blue wash mm-hmm. um, almost a 50 50 and use that because then it it gives when you look at a a, a blued barrel for mm-hmm. anybody who's not familiar with, with the term blued is the the treatment they give to metal on weapons um it there is a slight of a bluish black depending on how it is in the in the sunlight or light so this kind of helps replicate that instead of it just being totally black so, uh, between that and the graphite, I think it does a really nice job. Yeah, and um, I mean, I've got the, the ready once I get them out of the way. I've got my Tiger primed and ready. I've got a bunch of AK interactive paints as well to try um, for airbrush and for brushing. So, I've got two sets of the Russian um, paint sets to paint this um, Tiger with, and then also the T14, which will be built eventually. Um, Non-related moderns, I succumb to Jerry's and Jerry's uh, spiel about Saga. So I got a copy of Saga and I got a copy of Age of Magic. <laughs> oh yeah, so you're gonna take the dive into fantasy, huh? Yeah, I don't have a fantasy army anywhere, so I'm possibly gonna go into fantasy. And I got myself uh, the Kings of War orc on wings stalker to paint up so that'll probably be the warlord so it's a nice it's a nice mini actually it's a nice piece of resin yeah you know what uh, it's it's a nice to have a diversion you know you can't hold yeah. yourself into just one genre because no. then after a while you're like ah, you know it's nice to have mm-hmm. some uh, other outlets and then of course this past week or the week before it would have been the week before uh-huh. um protoss as we all sort of saw within that the, that community no longer have the aliens versus predator license yeah it, it um it it shall we say it ended at the end of april so they were selling off all of their their stock 
So I managed to get a bunch of the aliens I was missing and things like that. So I've got a pile of them to, in a box with the rest of the AVP stuff that I will eventually get around to paint. This is all the new stuff as well, so it's all the unicast. Nice. So it's not the single. It's not the single. You know, the the multicast which they did where you had to make them up, which yeah. was first edition. Yeah. This is all the unicast on bases, predators, aliens, um, Will and Utahri Marines, and all sorts. So they're all sitting there. So that's yeah, they're, the other they're actually nice minis. We got really a copy are. of the second edition AVP. So I don't think we've ever played it, but you know, we got it at Adapticon uh, a couple of years ago when Protoss was there. Um, so yeah. It, it, but there is a new game coming out. Yeah, but it's not... Gale Force have got it. Yeah, Gale Force uh, Yeah, them, I'm not a fan of the minis. No? Not a fan of the aliens. The, I think the Protoss minis were better. Um, but, you know, I've also got the Wargame rules, which I think is based on Warzone. On the Warzone rules that uh-huh. Protoss do. Or yeah. is it Mutant Chronicles? The AVP Wargame rules are based on them. Oh, okay. So they did it. They did a, a war game version as well. So, but it's just nice to have these extra minis sitting there because there's been a lot of IPs that seem to have gone war game and then disappeared. Um, River Horse changed their their Terminator game by the looks of it. It's gone to board game now, hasn't it? Really compared to yeah, the original. I I think the original war game version didn't do very well. No, I've uh, got a copy sitting on my shelf. I think I think. You know, board game versions do much better than a mm-hmm. uh, war game version, you know, especially when it comes to movie IPs. Yeah. Um, so, and movie IPs, it's such a tricky thing because, you know, you only get licensed for so long. And, you know, depending on the, the IP, it's only popular and, you know, when like a movie comes out or something. And then mm-hmm. you make this huge investment and then the interest of it wanes and it falls off. So, it's a tricky thing, you know. Obviously, is, Star yeah. Wars is one of those exceptions, um, but yeah. you know, you think about it, you know, like Terminator. When the movie was out, was very popular. Now, you know, it's like, eh, you know. And then Aliens versus Predator, or any of the, I mean, they've done Aliens to death personally. I mm-hmm. think, you know, so. Yeah. Um, well, there are some IPs that are, are are much wider or much they have yeah. a much longer run. So Star Trek, Star Wars are good examples of Lord of the Rings. You can buy IPs, and um, like if if you were going to war game with it, you could war game with it for ten years and not get bored with it. You're still going to have new things. Things like Aliens. How how many times can you yell "Get to the chopper" before it gets old? <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, um, and uh, yeah, like Transformers or you know th- th- these these movies are. A maybe not that good to begin with, um, like maybe like the first two like were good, or like Terminator One, Terminator Two were good, Predator One, Predator Two were pretty good. After that, they went straight in the toilet. Um, yeah. Terminator hasn't been good in a while. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, I'm, you, you I'm get, wondering. You, Sorry, Jim. Um, no, no it's just 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 the thought here as well as. We all know night models. No, no, this is talk, completely off our t- normal topic. But we all know night models has DC and Harry Potter. Yep. And they did have Marvel. They had the Marvel license as well to produce Marvel miniatures because their Hulkbuster was an absolutely gorgeous piece of metal um, as a kit. I'm wondering if they are now regretting the decision to go with DC. Oh, don't start that argument. We're, we're, let's not start the DC versus Marvel. Universe. It's not. It's not. A, it's not an argument. I'm just wondering if they are. When you look at what 
Marvel, especially in the cinematic universe, has just accomplished with Endgame. Yeah, no, no, I, no. I agree, but you know, there that is I, like um, you, you don't yeah. want to, you know, get those. No, we don't. No, we don't want to go that. But I'm just wondering if it is, you know, from a business point of view, whether they now look at the decision to stick with DC. And granted, yes, DC has the TV and all the elements there, and DC is popular. But when they look and they think, oh, well, we could have had, you know, yeah. a huge range of miniatures based around Endgame and Infinity War. But the, the question is, did they have a choice? Maybe Marvel came back and said, no. we want you to pay this much more money for the license, and Night Models goes, we can't afford it. And I think it was part of the agreement with Warner Brothers to get Harry Potter. Yeah. So. Because Warner Brothers owns DC, it's it's part of the Warner Brothers brand. Yeah, so I mean, like so, like um, Disney owned Marvel, Warner Brothers owned DC, and I think it was part of the agreement from that, from what, yeah. what was said in the community. But you know, it's just an interesting, you it know, is. it <laughs> is uh, question because if you look as well, Night Models used to do like Stormtroopers and and a lot of that stuff when they when they weren't concentrating on their two core games. Uh-huh. You also did a, um, a collection of 75mm Special Forces uh, in, in metal. Oh, you know, really? like, like, yeah, large um, size figures, like three ups. Um, and they had a, like, a seal, I think they had a seal, they had an SAS, I think they had Delta. And they disappeared once they, they started more and more churning out their, their other stuff. They had Lord of the Rings as well. We're doing Lord of the Rings miniatures. It's interesting. interesting. Little side. Yeah. But that's it. That's been it for me and Hobby. Well, let's see. For me, let's see. This morning, I'm all fired up. I've had two cups of Lifer juice, so I'm ready to go for the day. Uh, That's coffee for non-military types. Um, (laughs) What have I done? Well, I did the live stream the other night. So, Jim, how did the two camera work out? It's hard for me to tell from my side. Um, it looked pretty good. Uh, I was only on my phone, uh-huh. but um, it did it, it did look pretty good. Awesome. Okay. Um, so I painted up one of the Mena guys from uh, Spectre Miniatures. I just have to finish his weapon. Uh, he has an AK-47, and then I worked on one of the Ultra Combat Modern Russian Federation troops from Dish Dash, and uh, they're really nice. Um, I like those miniatures because they're beefy. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. when you hold one, you you feel the weight of it. So it's definitely, would you? Would I say heroic scale twenty eight mil? Um, looking at it compared to Spectre or, or their regular uh, skirmish engine, I would have to say yeah, it's more on the heroic scale. Um, so more like um, White Dragon and their miniatures. Yeah. Because yeah. they're, they're, they're the white dragon ones, which are really nice, um, especially the the ones that the the churning out for the Brits and stuff. They start, I think, are, are um, should we say slightly heroic scale as well? Yeah, yeah. I'm looking at the one I painted uh, versus one of uh, Full Battle Rattles miniatures, and I mean it's it's a subtle difference, but it definitely looks a little bit bigger, you know, be bulkier. <laughs> Um, which is nice because it paints up nice. But you know what? I think it lends well to the rule set that's coming out. Um, yeah. You know, so because it's going to be that card-driven, you know, fast play skirmish game. So, um, but they are very nicely detailed. Uh, it painted up really nice. Um, 
So. Was, so what colors did you do? Did you do them in camo or are you just doing uh, straight? I, no, Russian I did green it in, and... um, I'm trying to remember who said, I think it was Skobak suggested uh, the Russian camo, mm -hmm. um, which is basically just greens and browns. There, you know, there's no black in there, which I was surprised yeah. at. I didn't realize there wasn't any, so, yeah, so yeah, that's kind of what I did it in, uh, this Russian camo. Mm -hmm. um, I've gone uh, multi-cam on mine, but I don't think it really matters on my Spectre, on my, my Spetsnaz. You know, to be honest with you, at 28 mil, uh, most camo after you get done, unless you really do high contrast, it kind of all looks <laughs> the same, you know? Yeah. Um, so, but no, it turned out well. Um, yeah, I, I like it. So that's what I worked on, and I, I still need to get uh, the razor finished, and um, I still have the uh, patrol boat I have to finish as well. Uh, I kind of got roped into a separate project yesterday, speaking of Harry Potter miniatures. Uh, for Christmas, Dawn got the entire collection, and um, that came out at that time. Uh, I think she's behind a few releases now, but I, I've been teasing her about, hey, you need to start you know, because she has uh, the full Harry Potter collection. She got the full Twisted collection from the Kickstarter. And then she got, I think, the full collection from Moonstone Kickstarter. And it's all just been sitting here. I'm like, are you ever going to paint this stuff and do something with it? Ah, uh, well, you know. And I said, look, I will paint one miniature to get you going. So she gave me Hermione, and I painted that yesterday for her. So that's awesome. Yeah, so I worked on that. Um I've been really itching to get out a traditional classic, I don't know what the proper term is, uh, war game. Um, I almost pulled out Squad Leader. Um, I might <laughs> I might do Devil's Den. Um, there you go. You know, just something like that to play. So, um, you know, which got me to thinking, and what something you said, Jim, We, we when we seriously have to have a discussion about a war game weekend you know almost like a boot camp where we can do a combination uh we could have like some specter games going maybe some skirmish uh or ultra combat and have some classic war gaming going on you know if we do a friday saturday sunday thing and that way everybody can get exposed to all those things because there's some really good games out there obviously the classics and then there's a couple new ones coming out um that you know i think people would really enjoy as well so it's just it, i think we part of our responsibility is to expose people to games that they have not considered before or maybe have thought about trying and just you know didn't want to invest the money into it or you know i don't know it's just one of those things where i really enjoy some of the classic type games you know they're better it's just they're just straight out better I mean, it's, that, that, that's no big secret. Um, when it comes to these more modern, or I say modern, you know, more recent, I guess I should say, more recent uh, miniature-based games, I mean, there's nothing wrong with them, but let's face it, half of the hobby is painting the miniature or building the model and, you know, building the terrain and things like that. And there's, you know, obviously nothing wrong with that, but that only leaves 50% of your 
hobby volume, for lack of a better word, to go into the actual game itself. And um, I know I always beat on the Hex Encounter drum. It doesn't have to be Hex Encounters. Uh, Air War C21 is not Hex Encounters. Um, a lot of games, and when I say I say computer games, not video games, and yes, there is a difference. Um, you know, you can run into computer, you can run Harpoon, GDW's Harpoon. We're doing Naval Command later today. You know, these aren't just Hex Encounter games. These are also just straight out, you know, they're war games. I don't want to call them board games because they're not, you know, Parcheesi or Shoots and Ladders or right. anything like that. Um, you technically do play them on a board, but they're not, you know, Monopoly. Um, these are, I guess you could almost call them pure games because there's no miniatures, there's no terrain, there's no... So 100% of your gaming volume, you know, your, your expense, your storage, your money, your, you know, intellectual uh, investment when, you know, oh my God, look at all these rules I have to learn or whatever. Every, all of that gets dumped straight into the game itself. And so a lot of what gets, what, what other hobbyists might spend on building a miniature, painting a miniature or whatever is here being spent on research, being spent on on rules design, learning rules that are uh, probably a couple clicks. Uh, I don't. I don't want to say better, but uh, or you know, but they're just more in depth. Yeah. Um, that you know, quite frankly, a miniature game often. You know, again, this is no kind of a slam on miniature game, but miniature games just don't have the room for, for lack of a better expression. Because you've already spent X amount of time, you know, the amount of brain power that goes into properly painting a miniature is tremendous, you know, um, you know, what paints do you use, what technique do you use, what kind of brush or whatever, you have to go out and get an airbrush, how does that work, put that together, by the time you get through all that, you know, do you really want to sit down with Rise and Decline of the Third Reich and play, you know, you know, War and Peace with your miniatures, you know, most people know, they want to play, you know, a more easygoing game, but, you know, by that point. And that's just a different way to, you know, experience the hobby. But yeah, these other games that you're talking about, um, there are some people that are trying to kind of revive the, uh, the uh, tradition, so to speak, um, with, you know, more uh, recent uh, Hex Encounter releases. Um, but with, uh, you know, the market being the way it is, these games I found are, are way, uh, I don't want to say simple, but um, they're very light compared to the old, you know, 70s, 80s, and early 90s games. Um, and they have to be because they have to, you know, sell and make money and whatever. Um, but I think that the catch-22 there is that when you have that kind of a light game in a non-miniature setting, you're almost throwing out the baby with the bathwater. I mean, you're, you're, you're giving away everything that's great about a miniature game, and you're not really investing in what makes a non-miniature game great. Yeah. So it's almost like you're getting the worst of both worlds, if, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I think... I think when they create some of these newer games today, I think they're catering to the audience of today versus the audience of the 70s and 80s. Um, well, absolutely have to, yeah. Yeah, I mean, because, you know, there's the argument, well, we're more, we have much more going on in our lives today than we did back then. Things are more complicated. I don't know if that's necessarily true. I think it's just we live a different lifestyle than we did back then, you know, with the information flood of Internet and everything. You know, people multitask much, much more now than they did back then. You know, I can remember, just from my point of view, from the late 70s and early 80s when we played a war game. We kind of did what you do now, Jim, with your online gaming. You know, we'd 
my uncle would come over uh, when I was a kid to the house, and we'd spend a whole day playing like Panzer Blitz or something like that, you know. Um, or if we did play miniatures, you know, it was American Civil War on the basement floor, and it took all day. Half of the day was set up, and the rest of the day was, you know, playing the game till 8, 9 o'clock at night. So, um, yeah, I, people I don't think really these days have that much time to invest outside of like game conventions and weekends you know special weekends but you know if somebody wants to get in a game they want to be able to do it in a couple hours at most so i think the designers today are catering to that so i, I don't know I, I personally my opinion is i think sometimes people aren't getting the full experience when they have a game that you know they want to get over in an hour hour and a half two hours um, versus some of those long, in-depth strategy games. Um, so, But, you know, it's kind of an argument because while I'm talking about this, I'm thinking about my kids. My kids would spend hours upon hours playing a freaking video game. You know, oh, God. Yeah. You know, they would waste half their life playing a video game, but, you know, you talk to them about playing a war game, and it's like, well, how long does it take? You know, it's just like, I, I don't know. I, I'm not exactly sure what the difference is and why there is that delineation. 15, six, 15 years I've been playing Warcraft. Yeah. Off and on. Oh, yeah. You know, that's a video game. Yeah. The amount of investment and time and stuff. I, you know, I've, I've, been, I've actually... Um, the Hex Encounter stuff uh, is interesting because I backed War in 85. Oh, which is the yeah I back I back that um so that I think is due June July I know it's due this year so I think that's going to be an interesting one because I'm on the community on Facebook and you know the, the community is really great and a bunch of people have been converting it to doing like almost 3D so they've got the you know the hexes are made um so they take all the houses as you've got terrain in there. And they're using miniatures to denote the units as well. So they're actually making it more like a, a, a 3D board game almost. Nice. Or 3D hex, hex encounter thing. So that's that's an interesting one. And I think that by the looks of it, yes, it's because there's a couple of YouTube. They've been putting some YouTube stuff out and some stuff on, you know, some playthroughs of the game and, and some of the scenarios and stuff. And it doesn't, it's... I think what they've done with that one, especially when I've sort of just I've just skimmed, I haven't really watched, is they've made the rules easier to understand. So there might be the depth of the old traditional ones that we you know that we talk about things, not so much like Harpoon, but say like Squad Leader and things like that. But they've they've laid the book out in such a way so it's uh, much easier to get into the game. Uh huh. You know, with lots of pictures and you know information and things, so it's so it's much easier to to get over that barrier and I think that's what part of the issue is with certain games especially some of the older ones from the 80s and stuff things that I remember you know like Squad Leader Advanced Squad Leader Platoon um, not Platoon Arm Harpoon um, Air Superiority and things like that and Gunship which was an old West End Games one was that barrier of looking at the rules and being just feeling daunted by them yeah they... I am with I, I am with you on Harpoon mm-hmm 
Um, I played yeah. Harpoon back in the 80s. Yeah. And uh, that game will teach you a number of very, very important lessons about naval warfare. Here's uh-huh. the thing about Harpoon. You'll pick up a, uh, each – it's almost like Dark Star. Each mm-hmm. ship has its own sheet of paper or whatever. Yeah. I mean I know you know this, but just you know, for people who are listening, mm-hmm. you pick up that sheet. And um, by the time – you know, what do you normally do when you get a war game? What units do I have? And what's the, I mean, let, let's be honest. What's the first thing you look at when you look at what gun does this thing have? <laughs> what, what's its attack value? How yeah. fast does it move? All the sexy stuff, you know. I want to see its armor va- armor rating, all its combat, movement, you know, Michael Bay, boom, explosions, excitement, you know, stuff like that. Harpoon, and by the end of your third game, you're asking two questions when you get a sheet. Well, how many sensors does it have? And how many helicopters can it launch? Because that is 80% of naval warfare right there. It's all about electronics and it's all about helicopters. It's all about detection and extending the range of your eyes or whatever. Because that's that you know that that's a game that is you know brutally realistic. It's not one with torpedoes and bombs and rockets. It's one with sono boys. You know, it's run with um, you know helicopters with you know air search radars and you know uh, Hawkeyes and things like that. So um, that's one of the reasons that we I kind of avoided it for the Falklands because uh, it's it's literally just too much. Um, I know they came out with some, uh, at least as a board game. Later on, they came out with it in computer. I think it really found its niche as a computer yeah, game. Because it, it, yeah, because the computer does most of the heavy lifting for you. Um, so yeah, I went to this naval command thing from Rory Cram, and I'm I'm trying to make it work. I'm 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 really trying. <laughs> I'm trying, Ringo. I'm trying real hard to be the shepherd. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a little bit like Valorant Victories for squad leader. He's like, here's this great game from back in the day. How do we make this more accessible? And how do you do that? You have to take a chainsaw to it. And you have to start cutting big slices out of the rules and really, you know, slimming things down. And after that, I think it's just a matter of personal preference as far as how much is enough, um, you know, to cut things out of it. Uh, for our game of Modern Warfare, I'm sorry, uh, Naval Command later today, um, I had to put fuel back into the game. Um, because he didn't want to track fuel, he didn't want paperwork in his game. I have a computer, I can make it where you're not actually doing it with paperwork. But uh, without even playtesting, I'm just looking at the size of the map, I'm looking at the helicopters, I'm looking at the Harriers. And even more importantly, I'm looking at the uh, the Argentinian aircraft, the Mirages, the Daggers, and the Skyhawks. And without a fuel mechanic... The Argentinians are going to win every single game because mm-hmm. they have ten, literally 10 times as many aircraft. And if they're not operating at the absolute very, very end of their leash, that was the whole point of the Black Buck missions. If they're not operating at the very end of their fuel range, if they get to just basically float on the table for the entire game, you know, they're, they're going to sweep it. Um, so... <sighs> Again, did, I'm not saying that did, did did he cut too much out of the game in order to make it work, to make it you know more accessible for a modern audience. I don't know. That's again a matter of personal you know taste. Um, I'm not saying that his rules are wrong by any stretch of the imagination. He does get some high level stuff very very correct, but in this particular scenario. Argentinian fuel problems have to be part of the game or else your game is either a going to be unrealistic or B the entire Royal Navy is going to end up at the bottom of the South Atlantic in very short order. So you have to sort of engineer a little bit of that complexity back into it. Um, Again, it's, it's a matter of, you know, either personal taste or just making the scenario fit the particular situation that you're trying to recreate. Would this work if, you know, you're doing like um, a scenario out of Red Storm Rising? 
Uh, yeah, because, you know, the Soviets are there, um, the, the Americans are there, they both have carriers, everyone's got fuel, everything's fine. But in this particular case, I think we really had to put fuel back into the game, not as a disparagement of naval command or modern games in general who, you know, some people will say are made too simple, too light, but it just has to be put into this particular situation. As far as how simple a new or almost, I keep saying the word modern, how simple a modern or recent game has to be with all the distractions we have in our lives today. Facebook, Twitch, Netflix, Hulu, Marvel, DC, everything under the sun. Nobody's got time, quote unquote, for an eight hour war game anymore. Well, you know, uh, I guess that's just, you know, a sad sign, a sign of the times. Um, I, I think we really lost something there and there's going to be a few candles in the darkness that really try to hold it out or whatever. Um, and we are bringing a few people into that orbit, uh, with our weekend war games, not that our games take eight hours, but, uh, yeah, we're always going to be the minority, I think going forward and that's okay. But again, it's, it's not for everybody. So it's, it's going to be, I keep saying this, it's going to be a matter of personal preference. Yeah. I must admit, I'm looking at the Rory crap. I'm looking at his fire team modern rule set which um, a lot of people seem to be using, or quite a few people seem to be using, especially for um, doing Chechnya. That seems to have uh, regained traction again, doing stuff within you know the Chechnyan war. Um, we know Tiny Terrain's do, uh, he's, he's doing his own rule set, and he's, he had his Kickstarters with the minis and stuff, and he's posted some pictures up on his Facebook page and on Spectre and a couple of the others with um, the table he had made, which looks really nice, actually. It really does look like a, a really nice gaming table. Um, so um, um, these these aren't that expensive, actually, the, the Fireteam Modern, so I may get them next month in PDF format and then just put them on my Kindle and have a read through them and see what they like. Awesome. Very cool. So, uh, just one last thing. So, hobby-wise, um, this puts me outside of modern. But you know, speaking of uh, PC games, Jim, I have been playing one of my favorite PC games, which is Ultimate General Civil War. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Oh yeah. Okay. So, you know, that's kind of my go-to when I I need that itch scratch. So, I did uh, the first bull ru- battle of the bull run uh, yesterday. Um, I tell you, that's a hard game. It is not easy by any means. Um, I was. Were you? Uh, were you? Um, okay, I'm trying to remember the generals now. Were you uh, Beauregard or it's not McClellan? Who was? Oh man, I'm totally spacing out on my role here. Uh, were you the Union or the Confederates? I was the Union. Okay, so um, what? It begins with an M. Who was the commander McClellan? there? No, it was it was another Mick, but it was uh, oh, Mick. <laughs> well, no, it was it was a McClellan, Mick O'Neill, Mick. Yeah. Son, I can't I can't remember the the the, the game. The name begins MC. I, I'm totally spacing on it now. Well, uh, here I go. Totally, I'm actually keep, pulling it up as we speak. So let me yeah. Know. I feel like Morpheus in the Matrix. There's a splinter in your mind. I hate that. <laughs> I know I know this, but I just can't pull it out right now. Uh, Beauregard and. And the other one is details. Okay, so Winfield Scott, Irving McDowell. 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 Yep. McDowell. Yep. McDowell. 
Yeah, uh, Scott was the overall army commander there, like the chief of staff. And then Robert Patterson. Yeah, so, you know, it's... I I got to play that, and then I started dabbling into uh, one of the other campaigns that they have, uh, The Crossroads. I'm trying to remember the exact name of it. But it was kind of startling, because I totally forgot one of the generals in that, on the Confederate side, was my ancestor. So... I was fighting against my ancestor. So it was... Well, that's why you were having a tough time with him. <laughs> so, yeah, it was. Uh, I, I, it's a really good game. I wish they would make a modern version of that game. Um, but, you know, if you, anybody has interest in uh, Civil War, uh, it's really a good game. And I think you can play it against another person as well. So you can play player against player. Um, the trick for the Union at first full run is to cut the Confederate rail lines. Yeah. That's the only way they won that battle. I mean, no disrespect to Thomas Jackson or anything, but that that game was really won by by the railroad. So it's it's a good game. Um, speaking of PC games, Ralph, are you still doing Division Two? I um I haven't been on for a while, but um yeah, I'm still messing around with Division Two, and of course they announced the next Ghost Recon this past week. Yeah. Um, which does look really interesting. So I think I will be pre-ordering that one to see, especially the survival mechanic and stuff that they're putting into it. Um, from what's been said, there's a lot of stuff come out since they did the launch. The trailer looks really nice. Um, it also links back to the Ghost Recon Wildlands um, from the point of view of uh, progression and one of the characters you meet in the latest DLC mission. Uh-huh. Um, what they've been doing since Wildlands have been uh, free DLC. So the first mission was Predator. You could actually fight the Predator. Um, the second mission they brought out, which was uh, Special Operation, was, for people that know, was Sam Fisher. So the character from Splinter Cell, voiced by Michael Ironside, the, the great Michael Ironside, um, was voiced by Michael Ironside again. Um, and there's a little Easter egg where there's a reference to a Konami stealth character, which we all know. Um the third one was Ghost was Rainbow Six uh, Siege, so some characters from Rainbow Six Siege turned up. The fourth one was Ghost Re- was Future Soldier. Oh, the, sorry, the third one was Future Soldier, so that was the one of the previous Ghost Recon games. The fourth one was Rainbow Six, and this new one is called Our, uh, Operation Oracle, and you meet and you meet another member of the ghosts and it's john berthnell who played the punisher who was shane in the walking dead oh yeah um he's in it he's motion captured and it's his likeness um that character is actually the lead villain for the new ghost recon mm. um which is set in the uh, few years in the future and it's all to do with drones and that type of warfare you know, um, basically mechanical warfare and drones, you know, automation, things like that. Um, so it's all to do with that technology and you're on an island that's owned by a tech company that does that type of thing that's gone haywire. Um, but what they're putting into it, they're putting in the elements of if you get shot and injured and if you get wounded over time, um, it slows you down and things like that and you have to bandage yourself so that in survival elements you can create a camp and eat and drink and things like that to keep your stamina up and stuff because the idea behind it is unlike traditional modern PC gaming of a military ilk like Ghost Recon Wildlands like Rainbow Six Siege um, 
you are no longer the hunter, you're the hunted. Okay. So basically the mission goes to hell and you're having to survive behind, you know, on these islands that are controlled by the bad guys who are actively hunting you. That's a, a brief snapshot of it, but um, yeah, it was it was an, it was sort of announced this past week, which I thought was quite interesting, strange because we got E3 in end of June, middle beginning of June, and that's normally when the big announcements yeah um, get dropped. Um, so I think Sony have said they're not going to E3 this year, so they have something called State of Play, which is their YouTube you know announcements and they announced something that we talked about previously there's a new predator game coming out um where it's four people play uh, special forces and one person plays a predator oh interesting <laughs> yeah so it almost sounds like that uh friday the 13th game that came out with them yeah. a while ago yeah it's an online so, multiplayer game. Everyone logs in, and a random person in your eight-man server is, or whatever is, is Jason. Jason. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like like three guys in I don't know where they are. It's a tiny little team, like put together this game, and it just uh, despite the fact that it had all kinds of bugs and problems and patches, because it's like a three-man development team or a three-person development team, mm-hmm. but. Um, yeah, it's it's. Uh, it was fun listening to some of the reviewers struggle with the term asymmetric. Uh-huh. They didn't really know what it meant. They were like, "There's a term for this. I know what it is. I just don't know." What, you know, <laughs> I'm like, "Oh, you guys are not watching the right podcasts." <laughs> um, but then, as far as E3 goes, yeah, more and more companies have been walking away from E3 yeah. lately. I mean, Nintendo walked away from E3 how long ago? Five years ago. I mean, really? yeah, yeah, and, that going uh, back this year. They've been uh, okay. Then that's something I didn't know. But yeah. for a while, they were running their own event. Everyone started running their own event because <laughs> too many of these events, I mean, too many of the announcements that they've been making at these events have turned out to be, you know, crap. I mean, No Man's Sky, Order eighteen eighty six. Oh, well, people yeah. go, yeah. So you already know what I'm talking about. And people I go do, crazy yeah. over these 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 events and these uh, these announcements. And then the next year, the game drops, and it's like, this is what you people were, you know shaking the rafters about you know mm-hmm. this is terrible the original division the original division game was shown at e3 and then when it got released it was actually the graphics and everything were downgraded and there's a distinct difference between the demo that you see at e3 which was probably a non-played demo right. it was a you know it was a video demo um compared to the game that we actually got um in our hands it's basically the, a cutscene. Yeah, it's it, it, it's a big on cutscene. The 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 worst one that ever happened was when Sony dropped Killzone at E3, and you got this huge immaculate, you know, this 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 sheer polished demo of Killzone two or three, and then when the game dropped, it was like you would the difference was dramatic and there was a huge backlash over you know over that um that's why i think two years ago sony had a a live play of god of war when the new god of war came out and there was a live play on stage um of the actual game and it was the game creator and the, the or the producer actually playing the game because they've just dropped and I watched it yesterday, and it's really interesting. There's a hour, like a two-hour documentary that Sony did, filming the life cycle of the development of the new God of War. And it's got the A3 stuff in. It's got them, you know, looking for the actors to play Kratos and the Sun and Freya and things like that, because it, the the game was a huge departure from 
the original Greek idea. It's set in in the Norse mythology. It's, well, they ran know, out of they, they ran out of Greek gods. They, they yeah, he, 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 he butched them all in God of War three. Um, so they have moved them to to the north to the to to the north to Viking things. And I mean, the game looks pretty. I don't own a PlayStation Four, but it does. It looks immaculate. It runs at sixty frames, you know, in ten eighty p, and and all of those, you know, all of that thing, you know. But um, it's an interesting documentary to see the life cycle of a AAA title that takes took them five years to develop. And you I think start, that's um, you should start streaming some of these video games, though. I know I should, but um, gonna, game, gaming, gaming is well, gaming. No offense, anyone, but gaming is my, you know, it's one of the things I like to do, and not so much share. Even though I do play World of Warcraft and I'm in a guild, not that there's many members of the guild online at the moment because, you know, that goes through webs and flows and things like that. It's just something I like to forget about, not not turn on Twitch to stream or stream and just plug myself in if I'm going to kill things for, you know, half an hour to de-stress. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's that type of thing. But I also like reading the internet and um, there was a bunch of news that... I think we can possibly chat about Jay. Yeah, why don't you uh, start us off with that uh, was, announcement was, that was made? Well, there's there's the two there's the two announced there's two things that uh, I think our listeners will be interested in. Um, war bases in the UK who do MDF terrain, they do you know uh, counters, they do they do MDF bases to stick your minis on. Um, they're bringing out a twenty and a twenty eight millimeter version of Bin Laden's house. And the comp the whole compound, yeah, in 20, 20 and twenty eight millimeter. I asked when it was posted up. Um, I dropped a message on saying, "Are they doing the walls and things as well?" And the reply back was, "Yes, doing the walls, and they're doing all the the, the sub buildings as well." So, from what I gather, is you'll be able to get. I know there's a company in the US who's the one that I think we'll we'll talk about in the next article about. Um, them doing the Hotel Olympia, it's the same company, did a Bin Laden compound. But there's an interesting one now that war bases are doing it and they're based in the UK and their, their kits are really nice. Um, I picked up a bunch of their, what they call modular kits, so that, you know, you can buy different bits. And, you know, I've turned one into a church to see if I could do it and things like that, you know, make it like a, a church that would sit in the middle of um, somewhere in, in Africa, you know, that type of um, missionary thing. Mm-hmm. So, um, there's no date yet, but they're doing it in, in both scales. And on the one that he showed, as uh, interesting is a 20 mil base will slot onto the balconies and stuff. Because it's you know with the with the images, it's got some balconies and stuff on there. So I'm assuming that'll be the same for the 28 millimeter, which is quite good for me because I base all of my um spectre minis on the 20 mil bases because i've got a load of the counters <laughs> that they did which were based around 20 mil bases as well nice so that was the first one which i think is really interesting the second one of course is there's a company and i think they are american i think it's gc mini i'll try and get the proper url are doing hotel olympia from black hawk down yeah in 20 millimeter as well multi-level as well Multi-level, take all you can take all the levels off. It's got the rooms divided as well. He's got he's putting stairs in it and stuff like that. And um, that looks a really nice kit because he posted up a YouTube clip, which I've 
shared to the community and that was posted up on a bunch of the other sort of community websites as well so it's interesting that they're moved there they're creating these two shall we say iconic buildings yeah. or infamous bu- or infamous buildings Infam- depending yeah. on so what was the uh, a unique announcement about the Hotel Olympic um, that he posted? It, w- it was more the fact that it w- it's come out of nowhere, this, because I didn't even know. But I know he's posted up and he's asked on the spec- on a couple of the lists. He's looking for somebody to, to, you know, he'll send them one if they do reviews and things like that. So I don't know if they're getting a free one. You know, or you know, or whatever's going on with that. Yeah. But it was just, I think, from the point of view with these two buildings, have sort of come out of nowhere. You know, it's been on no radar. I've not seen anything. You would have thought, you know, especially something like the Hotel Olympic or Bin Laden's compound, that someone like Foreground might have picked it up. You know, I but, talked but to him the, about it. I talked to Big yeah. Ben about Mogadishu. I talked. I know you did. I know you did. But you would have thought, you know, that 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 it would have been or someone like Blacksite. Yeah. You know, a big a bigish company. You know. Yeah. Not not no offense, but not a like a, a small little a small company that that has the that might not have a lot of the resources to 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 put into doing something like that because it will take up a lot of time you know especially if you're doing it especially with bin laden being in two scales yeah and it's probably easier to scale up and down and things like that but still to do something like that in two scales is, is, is you know it's an interesting but then that leads it into and the reason i think the bin laden one asked i noticed straight away is because that was linked on the fire Fire Team Modern, which is the Roy Crab, Roy Crab um, rule set, and it's on their 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 Facebook group mm-hmm. with some sort of pre-production shots. And the other thing as well, which we'll come back to the building stuff was, and I don't know if we covered it or not, but on the twenty-sixth of April, Spectre on their Instagram dropped four pictures of four greens. I don't know if we covered them or not. I don't think so. Um, so there's four new greens went up on the 26th of April and it's a collection of special forces by the looks of it two are holding Chris Vectors version one, so the SMG Vector okay uh, two are holding the Vector 2 which looks like an assault looks like a personal um, a PDW a PWD, you know like the, the personal weapon Okay. Uh, but they're up on their Instagram uh, page as well which was which is interesting so um, I wanted to bring up something um, Christopher Moody on our Facebook page went into great depth about uh, stuff we talked about in the last episode about uh, both mm-hmm. action Korean going into Vietnam yeah uh, he just I don't know if he's a subject matter expert in this, but I mean, he went into huge detail on a lot of stuff like French Foreign Legion versus the Viet Minh uh, in mm-hmm. North Vietnam in 48 to 52. Um, yeah, I mean, he just, he had a lot going on and it was quite impressive to read through his stuff. So I just wanted to do a quick shout out to him and say mm-hmm. thank you for uh, all the contributions you did on the show. So. Uh, got a lot of good positive comments. And speaking of positive comments, Jim, I thought maybe you could give us a quick synopsis of the Op Center that just dropped um, this past week. Um, for those who haven't had a chance to get uh, an opportunity to watch it and maybe get their interest peaked so they go back and watch it. 
Okay. Um, so the Op Center uh, is a series that we're doing here on uh, on the Sit Rep podcast, uh, where what we're trying to do is take a war gamers kind of a, of a view or a war gamers focus on. Um, any conflict that has taken place after 1945, um, basically any modern conflict. Uh, 1945 is the benchmark that we're using uh, because reasons. I won't take 20 minutes talking about why we picked that date. Um, so uh, we did four parts on the Arab-Israeli wars. That went pretty well. Uh, it got a little bit uh, got a little bit stale at the end. Um, but we did get through it, and then we switched. We switched over to the Falklands, and for the Falklands, so far we've had a pretty good. Uh, we've had a pretty good response. So part one was basically an overview. Here's where the Falklands are, because believe it or not, not everyone knows. Um, here's what the war was about. Here's when it took place, um, and here's basically how it got started. Here's the opening moves that Argentina made, and the opening moves that the, that the British made. Um, so that left us with, uh, it was originally going to be a three-part series. Um, I got to the end of the air part, and I was already at 20 minutes. And I hadn't even started Naval yet. So I'm like, guess what? This is going to be a four-part series now. <laughs> um, so part two, that dropped, uh, oh, geez, at the time of this recording, it would have dropped uh, day before yesterday. Um, so part two is strictly the air operations part of the war. Now I have to kind of put this in air quotes because anyone who's familiar with the Falklands war know that air land and sea operations were very tightly integrated and there, there's a lot of going on where one affects the other. They're all, you know, it's, it's tough. It's like three different colors of water. It's, it's tough to kind of separate it into three completely, uh, homogenous blocks, so to speak. Um, but we're doing our best and part two was about air operations. So we talk about, um, the initial air operations that took place in the Falklands War. This is the British trying to retake the Falklands, and starting in um, very, very late April into May and uh, early June of 1982. Um, how small that war was from an, an air perspective. I mean, how how tiny the British air uh, a, a presence there really, really was. And it's important from a wargaming perspective because, as you can attest, um, Gianna, um, when you play historical scenarios in Air War C-21, for example, you look at the victory conditions, and it's like, okay, one Argentinian aircraft shot down, it's a draw. Two Argentinian aircraft shot down, it's a minor British victory. Three Argentinian aircraft, four Argentinian aircraft, maybe it's a major British victory. One Harrier shot down. All Argentinian aircraft shot down. It's an Argentinian victory. If two Harriers are shot down, doesn't matter how many Argentinian aircraft are shot down, it is a major Argentinian victory. And that seems like kind of wonky victory conditions. You know, they, the British basically are not allowed to lose a single aircraft while the Argentinians can lose them all day long. Well, it's because the British between their two carriers could only bring 23 Harriers down to the Falklands. They couldn't even have them all down there at once. Meanwhile, the Argentinians are walking around with 250 plus combat aircraft. Um, you know, it's like when you're playing the Israelis uh, on the Golan Heights or the Germans at, you know, uh, at a Kursk, if you lose one tank, man, you're in big trouble because the Russians are coming with 10, 20, 30, a hundred, 200 more. Um, that same kind of logic applies to the British uh, forces that are in action down there at the Falklands. So we talk about the Argentinian aircraft that were involved. 
their types, their strengths, their weaknesses. Uh, it's the Mirage 3 EA, the um, Israeli dagger. Um, that gives you an idea of how desperate the Argentinian Air Force was in a lot of places. <laughs> when, when the Israelis are giving away weapons. <laughs> these, are, these are the Israelis who go around garage sales in 1948 and basically like steal junked and wrecked, you know, um, Shermans or whatever. When the Israelis say, you know what, we're kind of done with these. You can go ahead and have them or whatever, you know. When there's, <laughs> it's third hand from the Israelis, you know it's it's kind of old. Uh, so that's the Mirage 5, in fact. The, 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 the dagger, as, as the Israelis called them. And the American Skyhawk, which everyone who's seen Top Gun knows what a Skyhawk is. Um, okay. Um, so we talk about them. We talk about their strengths and weaknesses and like what missiles they were able to carry and the importance of technology. And then, of course, the British, we have the two kinds of basic carriers that were there, the RAF version and the Navy version. Um, the American missiles that really kind of made the difference uh, and what helped really the British score this kind of a kill ratio. Uh, it was upwards of 10 to 1. Uh, overall for the conflict and then you've got um, you know like what the uh, what these real I'm sorry uh, what the Argentinians were trying to do first interdict British air missions we talk about the black buck the black buck one bombing mission uh, that the Vulcans tried to do to start putting bombs in the Argentinian runways on the Falkland Islands this doesn't quite shut down the runway in general but what it does do is it pushes the Argentinian jet aircraft off of the Falklands themselves. Mm -hmm. So the Falklands are a couple islands like 400 miles off the coast of Argentina. An aircraft can maybe fly at this day and age about 500 nautical miles in a radius. So when, if you're the British and you're trying to come towards the Falklands to take them back from the Argentinians, your first problem is this big honking Argentinian Air Force base where Port Stanley Airport used to be. Because it's 500 miles out from there. That's 500 miles of Argentinian air, uh, airspace that you have to fly through and bombs and exosets and all other kinds of trash, you know, ready to fly at you and start sinking your, your destroyers. You, know, you don't want that. Right. Um, so the first thing they tried to do, and we talk about this rather extensively in the episode, was they tried to put some bombs in that runway. They're not going to shut it down completely, but if they can shut it down for a day or two, now that's going to allow Sandy Woodward and his task force, HMS Hermes, HMS Invincible, to get closer during that crucial 24 to 48 hours and now launch more localized Harrier bombing strikes with cluster munitions on, those, on that airfield. The point is they want to stand on that airfield and keep it shut down, at least for jet-powered aircraft. And what this is going to have, what this is going to do, is it's going to force all the British, um, or all the Argentinian Navy and Air Force planes to operate off the Argentinian mainland, which again is 400 nautical miles further to the west. So now it's almost like the Battle of Britain, the sequel, where okay, the Germans have a lot more aircraft, but by the time they get over London, they have like five minutes of fuel. Mm. Whereas the British are sitting there with two aircraft carriers and they can operate over the skies all day. This was a big advantage that makes a big difference in a lot of the Air War C-21 scenarios. It's why we had to reintegrate fuel rule mechanics into our um, Naval Command game that we're going to be playing later today. And it's a big part of the, uh, the British air strategy and how the whole air war dynamics took place over the Falklands. We talk about all that in the episode. And we also mentioned some of the other things that took place specifically regarding to uh, air operations uh, where we had some special forces uh, action. We had a great callback episode. Now we're going to talk about this in more detail in part four because it's technically a ground operation. Uh -huh. But one of the very first things that the SAS ever did 
successfully. They had a lot of bad missions uh, when they first got started. Uh, it was back in 1942 when they launched a successful raid with the help of the LRDG, um, a successful raid on an Axis Air Force base uh, in Libya. And um, the, this idea, this is right before the Battle of Al Alamein, and it largely shut down the Luftwaffe and the Royal Italian Air Force over those battlefields during that crucial Battle of Al Alamein. So the British have never really gotten away from that idea, and even in 1982, they're still trying. And, and the idea is to drop special forces, that's either SAS or SBS, Special Air Service, Special Boat Service, guys onto enemy airfields in the middle of the night and have this, you know, classic, um, you know, Chuck Norris-style raid to blow up these airfields and blow up a lot of these uh, aircraft before – you know, the battle gets started in earnest. So there's a few of those raids. Um, there's one at uh, Pebble Island. Mm -hmm. um, there were no jets there, so that's why it maybe doesn't get mentioned a lot of times when you, they, people talk about Black Buck 1. But it does shut down some propeller-driven assets, that's the Pokhara ground attack aircraft or counterinsurgency aircraft that was still pretty effective against British shipping, and uh, some other smaller airfields around the Falklands, too. Um so we, we kind of, you know, mention that because it's part of the air operations. But again, we're going to get back to it in more detail in part four because it's technically a ground operation. This is what I was saying when I was, you know, mentioning that these air, sea and land operations are so tightly integrated. It's tough to talk about one without talking about the other two. Right. Um, but yeah, and uh, we, we talk about the live stream that we had, G, where we played uh, Air War C-21 live. We talk about some other scenarios that we played in the Air War C-21 where uh, Argentinian aircraft tried to bomb um, what they called the round table ships that were landing at Fitzroy. Mm -hmm. They call them round table ships. These were like su converted civilian-ish uh, 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 troop landing ships because um, they're named all after Knights of the Round Table. There's eight, there's, um, they're not HMS. That's why they're not technically Royal Navy, I don't think. But there's Galahad. There's um, infamously the Galahad. Um, uh Lancelot, you know, and then, you know, the rest of them. Uh, there's HMS Fearless. These really are Royal Navy ships, HMS Intrepid, that did the initial landings at San Carlos. There's Argentinians trying very, very hard to bomb them, you know, before they could drop uh, elements of Gurkhas, uh, Royal Marine Commandos, uh, Paros, uh, the Para Commandos are in there too. There, there's a lot, again, at air, sea, and land, it gets very, very tough to, to kind of pull it apart. Um, but yeah, that's these are the kind of things that we talk about in episode two of the Falklands. Okay. Uh, that went up. Um, it's mostly the air operation, and then what we're going to do in part three is going to do the uh, the naval part of it, which is going to include the landings, which is which means a little bit of land power gets put in there too, land operations, and of course lots more Argentinian airstrikes on these ships. Um, so a lot more in air gets mentioned in there as well. And then finally, part four, uh, which I'm trying to have rolled out before the boot camp uh, and uh, uh, June 7th over there on, on tabletop, is uh, the, the ground operations. This is once the air battle has mostly been fought, the air, air war never really stopped. And, the, you know, the troops have all been put on the ground. And now we talk about the actual ground battles. Um, Goose Green, um, Tumble Down, Wireless Ridge, and uh, uh, Mount Longdon, uh, the Two Sisters, uh, all these battles. We got the, the Scots in there, um, Scots Guards, we got Welsh Guards in there, those that made it off of HMS uh, Galahad. Uh, there, there was a big problem there. It's probably the, the, the biggest single loss of life that the British suffered in that, in that conflict. Uh, 
we already mentioned Goose Green, uh, the Battle of Darwin. Uh, yeah, there's there's a lot going on uh, ground-wise. Um, still influenced by naval and sea operations. You know, so again, we can never completely, you know, homogenize it. But we're trying to, uh, you know, cover these three topics uh, in these parts of the uh, Falklands uh, video series for Op Center. Nice. Excellent. That sounds like a big boatload of fun. <laughs> Yeah, we're halfway through. We got two more to go. Yep. So stick with us, everybody. So eventually, if we can get coordinated enough, when Jim has an idea for his future sets of programming, we're going to try and incorporate a miniatures-based scenario uh, demo game or playthrough uh, to coordinate with them. It's just it's a lot of lead time to make sure we can get everything coordinated. So that's why we haven't done it up to this point. We've talked about it just. It's one of those things we that were, we, we, were, we were talking about either a Pebble Island raid or yeah. a Goose Green or a uh, uh, Two Sisters or Mount Longdon one for, I mean, that was like back when we were just starting this. It's yeah. two weeks per episode and uh, four episodes, so that's eight weeks of lead time. But yeah. that still might not be enough because it is a lot of work to put together a miniature army. Yeah. We, and uh, we want to make sure it's done right. So absolutely. Yeah. You know, we don't want we don't want just cardboard boxes on a green felt mat. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> that just doesn't do it justice. Well, if there was ever a time, uh, it would have been the Falklands because the terrain in the Falklands is ridiculously well. I shouldn't say that; it's deceptively easy. Uh, long story short, there's no foliage, there's no trees, there's no bushes. It's just basically grass yeah. grass and rocks but the, the rocks have to be done right because it's like that that, that prehistoric basalt or granite that kind of comes up out of the grass and like those very uh, almost volcanic kind of slats that you see mm-hmm. in, in, in photographs and um, those have to be laid out just right it's actually tough terrain to build and it's got to be done just right because those were the only features you know it's like how do you do des- how do you do uh, terrain in a, in a true desert tank game um, it's not as easy as it sounds. You think, oh, just get like, you know, a pool table and spray it tan, you know. Well, where's your whole down shielding? You know, there's when there's so little terrain, what terrain there is becomes vitally important and you have to do it just right. Yeah. Whereas if you're in the Bocash country, well, throw up some hedges, throw up some bushes, throw up some trees and a couple farmhouses and a cow. And, you know, it, it looks like northern France. Um, when the terrain gets simple is when it actually gets tough. So the Falklands, as far as ground combat goes, and actually doing it in miniature, um, is, you know, six to five in picking. It's either going to be the easiest table you ever built or the toughest table you ever built. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's actually an, an interesting question. Awesome. All right. Any uh, final thoughts from everybody? There was something else that I missed yeah. off the news as well. Um, back when Warlord were doing Project Z, they did a military compound. Uh, in MDF yeah yeah um, Sarissa have taken that military compound compound because it was one of their kits and it was or it was branded for um, Project Z have now put it out as a kit by itself it's called the Secure Compound Scenery Set it's up on Sarissa's website uh, that's the prison uh, compound like right no this is a modern one oh. you get a warehouse you get a helicopter pad which can be positioned on top of the warehouse or to the side you get seven walls with spotlights and a gate oh it's called the secure compound scenery set in 28 millimeter that could make a good raid uh well 
I originally saw it, and when I saw it in Project C, they had it down as a Special Forces compound, and I thought that would have been a great sort of, and I saw someone use it as this, like a, like a, almost like a data center or whatever, uh-huh. and being protected by a bunch of Russians and some, it was either Russians attacking it or Russians defending it okay. against another collection, like a TR-1 force trying to break into it for some strange reason. So, you know, so my idea of a scenario where you're using the Spetsnats to kick off, say, an invasion of some description, you could use it as a forward observation, uh, like a a forward observation base or not so much a forward observation base, but like a a forward communications base where that's controlling air defense for a specific key sector. And you can use it as a CIA compound. Yeah. I'm looking at it right now on the Sarissa Mm -hmm. page and... Well, not exact. You could almost, almost use it for a um, the contractors, the security contractors mm-hmm. for a CIA um, off books compound. Yeah, almost like uh, thirteen hours. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Oh yeah, I mean, it's built. I know it's built. Looking at it, and if you look at the sort of the images of it, it's built for, shall we say, a World War Z, Daisy that type of environment you know but it could be used for anything oh yeah definitely really but it's a it's a nice collection it's a nice kit especially if it being done you know it is and honestly the prices are not bad at all for you get well you're getting yeah seven wall sections a gate a helipad and a warehouse you know and and it's it's a two 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 story building as well yeah and it it has an interior it's not just a shell so it's not bad at all uh Mm -hmm. that would make a good I'll have to look into that. That might make for a good uh, scenario. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Sarissa uh, is really coming on with some of their stuff. The Sarissa stuff's really yeah. nice. And it's reasonably priced as well. Their Middle Eastern, their North African stuff uh-huh. is really nice that they've done. They've done, um, it's called, it's, um, is it, let's have a look, see if I find it, North America. No, uh, North Africa and the Colonies, a colonial. Yeah. Yeah. So it's basically a collection of, of uh, like there's an administration building, and then next to it, for the same price, you can get administration building destroyed. So it's got chunks of it missing and stuff. Um, and they've done that with all of their sort of their middle their their bit scenery. I think it's predominantly to do it for North Africa to do like um Tobruk or El Alamein or you know, World War Two. Yeah. But it would work for any modern area as well and then if if you intermix that with the stuff the south of the border stuff that they've got so that's all the adobe mexican buildings well they could be just adobe buildings anyway yeah but you could intermix it into that with you know and then you've got you know you've got your north african stuff which could be some of the buildings and then you've got your adobe buildings and then you've got your technically your cartel type environment you know that that border town between Mexico and and the uh, Texas, or you know that that sort of area. Yeah. Uh, it, you know there was another. I don't know if you guys saw the coverage when we were at Adepticon, but the Phalanx Consortium had this huge uh, warehouse that you could uh, pre-order. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm on their page, but I can't. It says the building, but it's not coming up. So. I'll have to see if I can reach out to them and uh, see what we can do about that. But that's it was pretty. There's so much stuff going on right now, terrain-wise. Uh, if you look on our page, uh, Tiny Terrain has a whole Russia 
board yeah. set up, which is really impressive. Um, that's what I was at about. That's for his Chechenian um, yeah. rule set. That he's yeah. he's doing his own rule set as well. Um, tiny terrain. So we'll have to see if we can get them on at some point. Um, I know our uh, friend Tim, which is now with Footsore Miniatures. They're Footsore Miniatures again, right? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> After the whole uh, name fiasco. War, 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 war banner. Or war banner or whatever it was. War, yeah. yeah. I have no idea what's going on with, with Footsore and War Banner and whatever the, the hell they're changing their name to or what their name is. I don't think anybody knows apart from them. <laughs> Jim, it was a mess. I have a, I have a challenge for you for the next show. Um, it's an easy one. It's an easy one. Okay. Um, I would like you to talk about a game recommendation uh, in the classic games. Uh, it could be a newer publication or an older one, you know, Hex Encounter, um, that you would think is an excellent introduction game for somebody who may have never played that type of game before and why. And, and it, it doesn't even have to typically be modern, post-45. We'll even say... 20th, 21st century. How about that? Will that make it easier for you? I already know which one I'm going to do. Okay. <laughs> and and uh, spoilers, it's not Panzer Leader, so everyone just relax. <laughs> and Ralph, I have, yeah. I have one homework for you, too. Since you are the video game guru, uh-huh. uh, along the same lines, what video game, for somebody who's never played a video game, now, it could be a PC military simulation game like, uh, you know, the Civil War game I spoke about earlier, or uh -huh. it could be something else. Um, what would you recommend for somebody? Um, Steel Panthers. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was going to say Close Combat. Do you remember Close Combat? I do. Uh, I love those games. Um, I always played Arnhem. Arnhem was my favorite one. So, um, the thing is, there's, there's so many. I know. And there's there's the obvious one, <laughs> which I wouldn't, which is the obvious one to go for, which people can probably think what the obvious one would be, but I wouldn't class it as a military game per se. Yeah. Uh, well, I've got some ideas. All right. See. So, there's your guys' assignments. Um, and then I am going to pick a miniatures rule set. Um, that I think is a good introductory role set. So that will be our homework, and hopefully Chris will join us, and we'll uh, get Chris on something as well. So any last thoughts before we close out the show for today? No, no I'm good. All right, guys. All good. Uh, well, thank you, everybody, for listening to the Sit Rep Podcast. Uh, of course, as always, we want to thank our Patreon supporters. Uh, without you guys, we could not do what we do. Um, so thank you very much. Um, and one of the benefits that they're receiving right now is that they get early access to all our shows. So um, we're going to try and get those out even earlier for you guys. I know they went out a little later on Thursday. Uh, we're going to try and make sure that they're out by Thursday morning so you have a full 24 hours before anybody else to enjoy the shows and comment on them. Um, still working on some swag for you guys as well. And anybody else who's interested in supporting us through Patreon, please visit our Patreon page. It's at Rep Podcast. And always participate in conversations and post things on our Facebook page. And until the next time, we will see you all later. <laughs>